0: more late today than you usually are, it's just that we're getting ready to multiply to two services at two sites, and that means we're starting at 10 o'clock sharp in here. So that's all that was going on with that. If you felt like, what in the world? I got here. Uh, that was your normal lateness, and we're just, <laughs> we're just testing out uh, the, the time so that we can preach here and preach there together. Uh, our chairs are hung up somewhere in Canada right now. Uh, the chairs that will be sitting in at the second service over in Melrose. So we're still flexible right now about the dates that actual multiplication will happen. We'll stay in touch with everybody about that so you'll know it will be sometime in April. And unless there's a serious problem with the Mounties up there, the chairs will be crossing the border and getting delivered in time, the latest to do the actual first uh, two services on Easter Sunday. So that's where we're at with that. Uh, God rules by his word. He shapes us, corrects corrects us, causes us to hear and believe and be saved. And so we give ourselves as a church to his word together uh, throughout our service, throughout our lives, in our smaller communities, and at this time during the preaching of the word. So your hearts are supposed to be anxious to hear. God is humbling you. By making you listen to me, a sinner just like you, and look at this face and still say, I'm going to be humble, I'm going to receive from God by his word. He could have had his sermons preached by angels, he has chosen to do it through pastors who are flesh and blood like you, but he gives us this charge and so I ask you to humble yourself and hear with us today that God might do a great work in us. All right, so we're working through Mark's gospel together. Over the course of these two months so far, we have noticed something right away. That Jesus of Nazareth, even though he was a religious teacher, was unlike any religious teacher that the people of his day had ever seen before. He did his thing way outside of the religious box of his day. There was something different and unique and surprising and new about the way of Jesus. We've seen this with his authority. It used to be when you preached, you would cite a lot of sources and other traditions that have come before you. Jesus is doing something new. He just talks right from his own chest as if he had the authority of God. This was new. We've seen this in his exorcisms. You used to do these incantations to take a demon out of someone. He just stands up and says the word and they come out. And everyone says, whoa, this is new. We've seen this in his touching of lepers. In the past, you would not go within 20 feet of a leper. And Jesus walks right over and puts his hand on him flesh to flesh. And Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. And that is new. We've seen this in his forgiving of sins. No one would dare assure someone of the pardon of their sins, except one man, one day, in the city of Jerusalem, the priest on the day of the atonement. And we've seen Jesus in some random house up in Galilee on a Tuesday, forgiving sins. This is new. We've seen this in his calling of a tax collector, a compromised sinner, to be his disciple. If you were a rabbi, you would pick the cream of the crop, not the tax collector's. And Jesus says, Levi, follow me. This is brand new. And, of course, we saw this last week in Jesus sitting and feasting with prostitutes and thieves and tax collectors. A good Jew would not eat 10 houses, within 10 houses of that crew. And here's Jesus reclining at table with them. New. All these things should have shouted at us. Something new is happening with this Jesus. Okay, today we're going to see a a different element of this newness, and Mark is going to uh, allow us to hear Jesus then, and I've been praying that by His Spirit, hear Jesus today, right here with you, what this means for us, that we need to be anxious and willing to embrace the life-giving newness of Jesus' gospel and walk away from and get away rid of our former lives. So hear the text with me again and I'll pray and we will roll through this. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came to Jesus and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins the wine will be destroyed, so will the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. All right, let's pray. Father, we're sinners in need of grace, but we're also your people. And you love us, and we can feel your love for us that you've given us this account of the life of your son and the words of your son. Let us take shape from these words today, is our prayer. Hear an answer. Hear an answer. Amen. Okay, question. If you were to walk into a dentist's office, you know those waiting rooms, what would you expect to see there? What would be appropriate behavior from the people sitting in those little couch chairs in that office? You've all been there, right? Silence. It's very quiet in those rooms, right? You're reading seven months ago, Sports Illustrated or Better Home and Gardens, or messing with your iPhone, but it's a very hushed, quiet atmosphere. Maybe some frowns and some shrugged shoulders. (sighs) I don't want to be here. I can't believe I'm here again. Six months? What? That was two minutes ago. Maybe some tears. Mr. Cruz, Dr. Giotrellis is ready to see you now. No! Please, no. Where's the fire alarm? When I need it, I don't want to go. Any of these things would be expected behavior in the waiting room of the dentist's office. Now imagine somebody marching into that waiting room, just beaming, and smiling from ear to ear and saying hi to everybody, high fives all around. Then when their name gets called, they just jump out of their seat and they run. Which room is it? I can't wait for the next 25 minutes with those CIA interrogation lights blaring in my face and two strangers in scary white masks talking about the weather and jabbing at my gums with very sharp instruments. I'm very excited about this. If you saw that kind of behavior from someone, what would you say? Not right. Inappropriate. Something is very wrong there. That is not how you act when you're at the dentist. All right, another example, Red Sox game. Let's just pretend that you found a duffel bag full of $100 bills lying around and you were actually able to now afford tickets to a Red Sox game. Just imagine that fantasy with me. How do you act when you're there? You wear your Red Sox hat and your Red Sox shirt and your Red Sox bracelet and your Red Sox pendant and your Red Sox watch and your Red Sox boxers. You stand and you cheer and you shout and you boo and you high-five the people around you and you sing Sweet Caroline and you eat Cracker Jacks and you fill out your scorecard. If you're wicked ignorant, you call your friend on your cell phone every time the camera pans by you and you start waving, can you see me, can you see me? That's me, 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 can you see me? This is what you do. You're there to watch a game, to enjoy yourself, to have fun. And what do you not do if you get tickets to go to a Red Sox game? You do not bust out a novel and stick your head in a book for nine innings. You could do that for free at the library or in your living room all alone. You don't spend $675 and get around 34,000 people to read a book. If you saw that behavior from somebody, you would say, what? That's not right. That's inappropriate. Something's very wrong there. That's not how you act when you are at a baseball game. Okay, we could give a bunch of other examples, but I want you to feel that because of this is the same kind of a thing that's going on in our text today. Jesus has been on the scene for a while, and people have been watching him do his thing. They've watched him sitting and teaching in the synagogues, sitting and teaching in homes. They've watched him calling his disciples, and they know what's going on here. What Jesus is doing is not unfamiliar to anyone. It is clear that Jesus is some sort of a rabbi, some sort of a religious teacher, starting some kind of a religious movement. And this is what you do. You sit and you teach and you call disciples and you rabbi. But the problem was that Jesus did not do his rabbi thing like the other rabbis. And our text today, specifically, the issue was That Jesus and his disciples did not fast. We're gonna work through the text. Verse 18 said, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So there was a whole lot of other religious movements going on at the time of Jesus' ministry. One was a crew of disciples who followed John the Baptizer, who had this powerful, vibrant ministry in the years before Jesus. This other was a crew of disciples that would follow the super-legalistic, law-abiding, tradition-embracing teaching of what was called the Pharisees. Both of these were Jewish movements, and so one of the marks of both of them was fasting. The three main pillars of Judaism and religious devotion were prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And so there's nothing surprising at all about these disciples of John and the Pharisees fasting. When we read in the text, now John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees were fasting, were supposed to say, okay, tell me something that I don't know. Of course they were. This is what religiously committed people did. This is like crying at the dentist. This is like doing the wave at Fenway. There's no surprise here. This is expected and appropriate behavior. Now, the approach to fasting was probably different. John's disciples were fasting in repentance and sorrow and a desperate hope for God to move in power and grace on behalf of his people. The Pharisees were probably doing it in a much more legalistic and religious way, much less noble than that. There was only one mandatory day for fasting in the year for a Jew, the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees, as they liked to do, had added 103 more days to the list, saying you also got to fast on Mondays and on Thursdays. And what would have been a very fine devotional practice, except that these guys had this way of sucking the life out of these things and making them a heavy burden on the people instead of something that gave them strength and encouragement. But either way, the given was this. If you were holy, this is what you did right here. You fasted. And so you can imagine what a surprise it was to people who were paying attention to the Jesus movement that there was no fasting going on. They started to ask each other, Are you seeing this? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? These guys don't fast ever, not even Mondays or Thursdays. We watched them all day on Monday. They went Dunkin' sausage, egg, and cheese with a coffee colada and one of those chocolate crullers each for breakfast, and then Chipotle for lunch, and then Kowloon with the Kung Pao chicken and the pork fried rice for dinner. And I know they snuck a couple of Snicker bars in there during the day. Something is not right with this religious movement. This is like happiness at the dentist or reading a novel at Fenway. This is not appropriate behavior for a rabbi or his disciples. And so this is what begs the question in our text. And the people came and said to Jesus, Hey, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Okay, this is a less insidious and nasty question as some of the others that will spark conflicts in our study of Mark's gospel. This is an honest question from some people who were just trying to get their heads around what was going on with Jesus. And they said, Jesus, if, if you guys are going to be taken seriously, you've got to get on board with the fasting protocol, don't you? This is what holy people do. This is the way that things are done. And what is Jesus' answer? His answer is, you mean were done. This is the way that things were done. But I have come to do something new. Like he often did, Jesus answered their question with a question of his own. 19 says this, And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. All right, typical, beautiful Jesus answer. There's a couple of things going on here. There's sort of two levels to this question answer that he gives to them. The first one is this Jesus is saying that his coming onto the scene is such good news that it would be totally inappropriate to continue with a somber, solemn practice like fasting, that his advent among his people is cause for them to stop the somber fasting and start with the joyful, raucous, celebratory, feasting as if it was wedding time. We grew up at 52 Woodwood Street in Everett. It was my dad. He's kind of loud, right? Have you met him? A little bit. It was my mom. She's a little bit loud, too. that it was two sons 15 months apart, and all of our crazy Bostonian friends. In other words, the place was loud, like that. But it was never louder than the night before my wedding. Because every dude that I had grown up with showed up at my house one by one before we all headed out to celebrate together. And every time somebody came in this house, it just got louder. Maddie! This is what they call me, right? But you couldn't say it any lower than that decibel right there. Maddie, can't finally get married! And that was like the first guy. And then it would get louder and louder. By the end of the night, there's police driving by what is going on in this house. The next day was the wedding. There was food everywhere, there was dancing, Grace looked great, DJ Toto was there, it was a party. You knew I was going with DJ Toto, right? The groomsmen were there, and their friend, the groom, who had dated this girl like forever before he was even shaving, was finally getting married. It was a wedding, it was a joyful occasion. Now imagine if one of our buddies was at my house that night. Or at my wedding the next day and he was all glum and he was quiet and he didn't eat anything or drink anything, not even those giant strawberries that they dip in the chocolate, he just said no. Would that have been right behavior on that day? Would that have been an appropriate response to the events of that weekend? No. And Jesus' listeners, they would have known it. For a Jew, a wedding wasn't a seven-hour party, it was a seven-day party. There was an abundance of food for a week, joyful singing and dancing and laughing and shouting. Even the rabbis were expected to take the week off from their instruction and have a good time. And when you do show up for that, you show up ready not only to dance and laugh, but to eat to feast, it would be out of the question to show up at a Jewish wedding and say, oh, no thanks, none for me. I'm fasting today. It was too joyful of an event to go there. And Jesus says same thing, right here, right now. My disciples are responding rightly. They are understanding what's going on. Something glorious and new is happening the time is for feasting not for fasting and why why the second level of this metaphor from jesus that jesus chooses to use is he says because i am the bridegroom of israel Now that language would have stopped people in their tracks bridegroom is god language Brent read for us earlier, and Yahweh is speaking to his people. He says, I have been a husband to you. In the Old Testament, when you hear bridegroom, you think God, the covenant Lord of his people, showing up to show grace to them. That God was coming to unite himself to his people like a husband to a wife. And so Jesus is saying, and the disciples are recognizing That in some way, which will become clearer as we work toward the cross, Jesus was God showing up. That God had come in this Jesus of Nazareth to bring gospel and kingdom and restoration. A fulfillment of his old covenant promises. And that is why there is so much conflict and explosion and angst in this story of Jesus. Jesus, the bridegroom, has come to usher in a new covenant and that meant doing away with the old. This is why Mark fastens these two parables on the end of this conflict story. There's a verbal connection here. If you could read the original language, the tearing away of Christ from his disciples fits with the tearing away of the cloth from the clothes and in an oral Culture, words would trigger things to be associated together. So Mark gives us these two together. But it's not just a linguistic thing. There is a themed connection. Just like fasting, the old needs to give way to feasting the new. The older covenant behaviors and regulations and practices needed to give way to something new. The two could not fit together. All right, one example, and then I'll give you the parables. Come back with me to 1995. This is my dorm room in college. Some of you guys are still living in these crazy places. Mine was on the eighth floor overlooking the lower lot that we all wished we had a parking pass for and raked up hundreds of dollars of tickets because we thought we could get away with parking close to the dorms. It was one of my best friends and I, cooped up in this overcrowded, funky-smelling, octagon-shaped, yellow, it was yellow, very loud dorm room. There was two TVs. One of them was always on, and it was always on ESPN, and you were not allowed to change it. You would get beat down if you tried. There was a mini fridge in there. It was stuffed with Mr. Goodbyes and Dr. Pepper. There was clothes strewn everywhere, and everything was wrinkled. My wingmates were constantly bodging in, uninvited. It was awesome. It was college dorm life, 1995. Now, fast forward nine months to 1996. This was when Grace and I were married. How's that for a transition right there? This apartment we lived in smelled so nice. I opened the fridge, and there was vegetables in there, and fruit, and water. Whoa! We had an iron. I was amazed by this thing. You just turn it on, it gets hot, and it takes the wrinkles out of your clothes. It's just crazy. Now, question, was there any way in the world that I was taking my new wife and this new marriage back to live with me in anything that resembled that dorm room? And the answer is no, you just can't do that unless you're shooting for an immediate annulment of this marriage. These were the guys' only dorms for a reason and just for a season. But the newness of marriage demanded putting off the oldness of this dorm life. This dorm life was not evil or wrong. It was great. But something much better, much better had come along. And in order to take hold of that glorious new life, I had to walk away from the old. Are you feeling that? That's what Jesus is saying with these parables about his gospel. First he says, hey, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If you do, the patch tears away, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. All right, so let's say that you had a green jacket, and it had a big rip in it, but you really loved this jacket. You might think to yourself, if you didn't know any better, I got it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll go get the same exact fabric in the same exact color. I'll take it to Charlie's Dry Cleaners We have Giuseppina Minnicapelli, Grace's mom, does the sewing, the tailoring. And I will sew that new patch right on this old coat, and it will be all good. But what are you forgetting if you try to do that? The fabric might be the same. And the color might be a perfect match, but you can't mix old with new. It's not going to work. You wash it once and what happens? The new shrinks, tears away from the old, and the hole in your coat just got a lot worse. And so what do you need in that case? You need a new jacket. The old one's time has passed. You can't hang on to the old and embrace the new. It just doesn't work that way. And then Jesus gives a stronger, more intense parable. He says, all right, it's like this. Nobody puts new wine in old wineskins. If you do that, the wine is just going to burst the skins. You lose all the wine, the skins are ruined. No, new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, has anybody ever seen a wineskin before? Don't raise your hand because you never have, and I I haven't either. Okay, I think we can get the idea of this. Wineskins were like their glass bottles. And you'd take new wine, and you'd pour it into this new leather wineskin that you had, and uh, everything was fine because the wine was fermenting, and it was fomenting, or foaming, or bubbling, or sparkling, or whatever new, fresh, living wine does. And the leather was brand spanking new, and it was ready to be moved around with this new wine. And new wine went in a new wine skin, and that's the way that it worked. It was good, and it was perfect. And as the years would go by, the wine would settle, and the wineskins would settle, and it would work for you. But what you couldn't do, and what you couldn't expect is for old wineskins that have already served their purpose to be reused with a fresh, new batch of wine. If you put new wine into the old wineskins, what happens? Explosion, bursting, the text says. Bam! That wine is alive and young and fresh and moving and full-fermenting. And it will explode those old skins. There's too much life in new wine for old wine skins to contain it. And this is what Jesus was saying. I am not just another rabbi with a new little wrinkle here. What I have come to do is not just uh, an attachment or an addition to the status quo. I have come to end the status quo, and to make all things brand new. Yahweh and His grace has worked covenantally with you people for a long time, but what I am doing cannot be integrated into the pre-existing conditions of that older covenant. My work is going to surpass it, to fulfill it. I'm going to do what Jeremiah prophesied. I am ushering the new covenant in, if you went and read that passage that Brent read before and after it, you will see Jeremiah saying, "No more mourning. It's time for dancing. No more fasting. It's time for feasting." I've seen the new covenant that God is going to bring, and Jesus says, "I have come to do that." And the old ways and the old forms, old forms can't handle it. It will explode those forms. If you're going to be a part of this new gospel thing, you have to be willing to leave the old behind. All right, now we have to be very careful with this text because it has been used in ridiculous ways in our day. Jesus is not talking new wine as a way to say that he was trying to become a moral progressive in the days of this text. And do away with the moral law of God or the creation order of the goodness of the way that he had designed things to be. He was not saying that we're going to surpass the call to purity and holiness and the obedience of faith. In fact, the new covenant was going to make that stronger because the law would now be written on our hearts. And not just tablets of stone. What Jesus was bringing was a new covenant change in His perfect life and His atoning death and His victorious resurrection, all of the types and the shadows and the ceremonies and the regulations of the older covenant, which were good in their time, just like my college dorm room, would be giving way to something way better, something new. So the sacrifices that were so necessary to the older covenant pretty soon would be gone. And done away with. And the cross would become a once for all sacrifice of sin. Do you feel like? Feel that? The the food laws that were so important in the older covenant to separate clean from unclean were gonna be history because Jesus would make our hearts clean and we could eat whatever we wanted. The priesthood that was so necessary to the older covenant was gonna be history, gone. We would now have one high priest before our Father, interceding for us in heaven. The circumcision, like Brent talked about, this mark in the flesh would be gone, and instead the sign would be universal, and we would be baptized into the new covenant of Jesus. The temple would be gone and replaced with God's people, where the Spirit dwells. The Passover feasts would be gone, and a simple bread and cup would be the covenantal meal the centripetal mission of trying to draw the nations to Jerusalem is finished. Now, it's a centrifugal mission. And the gospel goes from Jerusalem out to the nations. You guys seeing how the old will give way to the new? It has to. Jesus came to usher in a new covenant. And there was no way to be a part of that reality if you were going to hold on to the types and the shadows. Of the past. You can't sew old and new cloth together. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. You cannot take your bride to your old dorm room. If you want the grace and the power of the gospel, you have to be willing to walk away from the forms of the old. Now, who was it in Jesus' audience that this news would have been the hardest to take? And to hear. It's the disciples of the Pharisees. These guys had assumed that the way to prepare for and to hasten the coming of the Messianic age was stricter adherence to the older covenant. Not a doing away with it. That would have sounded crazy to these guys. They were so deeply entrenched in the old, they had so much to lose. If the old got messed with, they loved those laws and especially their traditions on top of those laws. They had memorized every one of them, their respect, their paycheck, their self-worth. All of it was wrapped up in seeing the older covenant remain the status quo. And Jesus said what? He said, you have to walk away from your former life. Remember how Peter and Andrew dropped their nets and left their fishing boats behind to follow Jesus? With these parables, he's telling these scribes and Pharisees, You got to drop your books and drop your traditions and walk away from what you hold dear and your old life and be made new if you're going to follow me. You cannot have that old life and have my gospel too. And what was their response? And we'll see it in this whole year in the Gospel of Mark. No way. No, 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 no. We are not leaving our old ways behind. We like these wineskins. This is my green jacket. I like the way that it fits. We're going to keep on fasting on Mondays. We're going to keep on fasting on Thursdays. You guys can go and feast. And their refusal to receive Jesus and embrace Jesus and walk from the old and hang on to the new, it left them on the outside looking in at the kingdom of God. Now, we love to throw down on the scribes and the Pharisees as we go through this gospel, and and that's okay to do. But Jesus makes the same exact demand on you and on me. These parables are just as true right now in this room as they were back then. We cannot just add Jesus to our old lives. We need to be willing to allow Jesus to remake our lives entirely. And this is as hard for us to do today as it was for the disciples of the Pharisees to do back then. Because we like our dorm rooms just as much, if not more. And we like our green jackets just as much, if not more. And we like our wineskins just as much, if not more. And we will walk away from Jesus rather than give them up. We'll do it. We're getting ready to have our final all-together service, and it'll be in this room, and it'll be crazy, and it'll be fun. And I've been pouring through these old pictures of the early days of Seven Mile Road, which was then called Edgeworth Church. Chris had hair back then. I had hair back then. There was like two kids, and then seven, and then 114 in the pictures. And it was actually... uh, Very, very hard for me to do that and to drag and drop those pictures as we'll watch them together. And here's why. Because there's all these pictures of all these people who spent a good amount of time with us in the life of this church trying to center around the gospel. And it felt like, I don't know, 90% of them are not here anymore. And they're not just not here, they're nowhere near Jesus or his church or his mission or his gospel. They're just gone. Naturally, I have thought really long and really hard about that, right? Asking why. Why do people come and get a taste of Jesus and a taste of his gospel, and then they're just done, and you don't see them anymore? These parables are why. See, we come to Jesus and we say, you know what, my jacket's in pretty good shape, but maybe I could use a little God patch, a little Jesus addition. I'm going to sew him on right over here. He'll look good on this arm. This is what happens in the life of a new church when you're just meeting a million people. And they say, oh, all right, church, religion, Jesus, I'll try it. I'll come and add a little bit of that to my life. We see this most intently when you people are about to get married. All of a sudden, you really want to add Jesus on, at least for the ceremony. Can you do our marriage prep because we're getting married and... God should be a piece of this and a part of this and I want to add a little Jesus to this. I've heard that a bunch of times. And then what happens when you start to add a little Jesus and you start to dig a little bit into his gospel and what it gives and what it requires? What do you realize about Jesus' gospel? It doesn't work that way, you guys. Jesus will not be a little part of your otherwise nicely put together life. He won't do it. Jesus messes with your jacket. In fact, it is his aim to tear apart your old life outside of his grace, to wreck it until you finally can see that what you desperately need is not a patch, but you need a brand new jacket. Jesus will not allow you to add a little bit of Jesus wine to the carefully crafted menu of your life. You start to do that and you realize, whoa, Jesus is going to blow this whole thing up if I stick with him. And anyone who has tried to add a little Jesus to their lives very quickly realizes that sooner or later it won't work. Jesus will not settle for a corner or a sleeve. Or a menu item. He is either the Lord of all of you. Or he is the Lord of none of you. Either his gospel defines every inch of your life. Or you have nothing to do with him. You either become a new creation. Or you die in your sins. That's the gospel. That's it. Jesus did not come to be an accessory to your perverted and sinful. And self-centered and self-pitying and self-righteous life. In love, he came to set you free from your former life. He came to burst that old life with brand new wine. He came to tear it up like an old jacket. Trying to have both the gospel and your old life and your way will not work. And we struggle with that big time, hugely. And this is the reason for those pictures. And I am not batting-mouthing those people at all. I love them dearly and stay in touch with them and would do anything for them. But we come to church for a little while, and then we say, you know what? No thanks. I like my wineskins the way they are. I like my jacket the way that it is. I have had this conversation with so many people. I've worked very hard to knit this life together for myself. I will keep on fasting on my Mondays and my Thursdays you'll go ahead and feast. And our refusal to embrace Jesus and his gospel and our refusal to allow Jesus to make every single thing about our lives brand new, redeemed, leaves us on the outside looking in of the feast of the kingdom of God. But what if our story was different? What if it was different? What if the mark of Seven Mile Road was that we were just a bunch of people who said, you know what? We're done with our former lives. We're done with our old jackets and our old wine skins. Jesus, we want the new, joyful, glorious, celebratory, life-giving wine of your gospel. Start fresh with us. That's my desire for you, that the name Jesus wouldn't just be another name to you, that that would be the name of the bridegroom and your heart would leap, that Jesus would not be attached somewhere, but that he would become the very center of our life together, of your life. That is not an invitation to death. That is an invitation to death of the old and life of the new. And my prayer is that you would look at your life and say, where am I hanging on to my old jacket, my old ways and keeping the new wine of the gospel far from me. Let me stop and do away with the old and open myself up to the new wine of the gospel. Jesus, explode the junk that has been here and make me brand new. This is what he came to do with his disciples. This is what he has come to do with you. This is what he will do with all things when Christ returns the old earth the old heavens will go and our former lives will go with them and all things will be made new. If you don't allow him now to do that in your soul, you will have no part in the coming kingdom of God. Allow him to make you new in anticipation of making all things brand new. That's the promise of the gospel. He will do it if you will turn and believe. Let's pray together. Father, this text is so hard. What a leap of faith to do away with all the old ways of acting and thinking and behaving. We grow so comfortable in our old jackets. The old stuff tastes so good to us. We can easily be duped and deceived into hanging on to former things. But I pray that today in this room would be a brand new day for some of us, for all of us. That we would say, we're going for the new wine of the gospel and it is alive and it is delicious and it is new and it is fresh and I want it. Father, forgive us for trying to add you as a patch to our old life. Teach us to see that what we need is to be made brand new creatures in Christ. Jesus, thank you for for your perfect life and your atoning death and your resurrection from the dead, the first fruits of all things being made new. And would you let Seven Mile Road be a place that does not hang on to the old stuff but is constantly being made brand new come by your spirit and give us that grace is my prayer hear an answer amen amen